This is the sidebar for the week of May 26, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We have made progress in our ability to produce. We're, we're much more productive as a country, and we have more people, and so we're able to get a lot more done. And yet somehow all of that progress, all of that production does not seem to accrue to the typical American household. This week, Washington Post reporter Max Ehrenfreund on a new report examining declining American wages and the shrinking middle class. Max Ehrenfreund of The Washington Post, in a recent essay you wrote based on a report that came out this month, America is getting richer every year. The American worker is not. What did you find out? The researchers found, in essence, that if you take all of the money that a typical American worker makes over the course of his or her career, that amount has not been increasing for workers born in more recent years. In fact, the youngest workers for whom the American standard of living, again, looking at the course of an entire career, was steadily increasing, were born in 1942. And so those people are now 75 years old today. And people younger than that have not have not participated in uh, the kind of gradual increase in standards of living that we as Americans have come to expect. This is a pretty comprehensive study done by whom? And what were some of the most startling conclusions? It's a group of economists uh, at, at a number of different universities. Also, they collaborated with uh, the federal government, the Social Security Administration, which provided the records and the data that are the basis for the conclusions. So let's drill down into some of the uh, items from this report. One of the most interesting, maybe obvious, is that decisions that you make before you turn 25 will impact your lifetime earnings. Can you go through that? Yeah, that's exactly right. The really interesting thing about this report is that it shows that people's incomes when they're about 25 years old seem to uh, seem to determine, if you will, their trajectories for the rest of their career. Now, of course, there are many people who move up, who climb the ladder as they get older, who, uh, you know, maybe they start as interns or medical students or something like that. They don't make a lot of money, and then by the time they retired, they're quite affluent. Uh, there are also some people who fall down the ladder, as we know. Uh, you might think of athletes, someone who uh, has a very uh, successful career as a young person, a musician maybe, and then retires into obscurity. But in general, if you look at the average for a group of people born in a given year who enter the labor market and become adults at the same time, their average incomes as a group uh, follow a pretty predictable tra trajectory based on, based on what their incomes were when they turned 25. So what that suggests is that young people's conditions, their education, their parenting, where they grew up, the opportunities that they had, and, and all of that really does determine to some degree, and in, in ways that economists don't completely understand, uh, their, their prospects for the rest of their lives. And of course, all of this affecting the baby boom generation. So when they started into the workplace in 1967, for example, versus 1983, what are the differences? What did you find out? By well, I'll start. I'll start with 1967. Uh, people who entered the labor force in 1967 were part of the uh, baby boom. Um, they were they were born. These individuals were born in 1942, so they were a little bit ahead of the real bulk of the baby boom, which came a few years later. And they were doing really well as soon as they entered the workforce, and that was partly because uh, they had grown up in post-war America. A 
I, I guess you could say a, a more secure and confident America that had just uh, emerged from victory in the Second World War. They all had a kind of standardized public education, what we now think of today as being the standard American education. That gave them a real advantage over many of their older contemporaries. Uh, people who were in the workforce at the same time who were a little bit older might not have had the same level of education. And, of course, the economy was growing overall, and so there was just a lot of opportunity for young people, especially uh, relatively well-educated young people at the time. They were relatively well-educated compared to the people who were already working at that time. And so uh, people who turned 25 in 1967, uh, those people are now 75 years old today, and they've really done quite well over the course of their careers. But people who entered after them and especially by 1983, which is the most recent year for which we have complete data over the course of an entire worker's life, uh, th they didn't do as well. And, and it's partly because there was competition. I mean, they had competition from the rest of the baby boom cohort, a large number of workers, all of them quite well educated. And, uh, and, and But there are other things going on as well that I don't think economists completely understand. As I mentioned earlier, it seems that in some difficult-to-describe-or-define way, uh, their uh, circumstances as children, uh, their, their opportunities, their education, their parenting, whatever it might be, did not give them the same kinds of opportunities, skills, what have you. And so they, they were not able to go as far uh, over the course of their careers. So generally speaking, does this back up the argument that we've been hearing and seeing in political debates in recent years, the shrinking middle class? Yes, absolutely. And I think it even uh, uh, corroborates that argument even further because we've all understood that, th that the middle class has been in decline in recent years. But what this, what this data shows is that the decline began much earlier than I think many people recognize. I mean, if you think about the typical household, uh, typical household incomes have been increasing for many years. I mean, the typical household income only stopped increasing in 1999, so it seemed like for decades things were still looking up for ordinary American families. But what that concealed was the fact that as, as the baby boom was getting older, uh, they were acquiring new skills and experience, and they were thus able to draw down more in income. And at the same time, women were entering the workforce for the first time in large numbers, and so their incomes added to the typical household's income. But if you control for the gender and the age of the worker, that is, if you compare women of the same age across time and men of the same age across time, you find that, for instance, 35-year-olds were making much less than than 35-year-olds were making, say, in 1980. You quote Gary Burtless. He's an economist with Brookings here in Washington, D.C., not part of this research. He called some of the numbers, quote, astonishing, and he said this, the stagnation of living standards began so much earlier than people think, which goes back to your early argument, and again reinforcing your point that women making more than men. Well, women are making less than men, but they are uh, recording more gains. That is, they're making more progress. And, and, of course, when you talk to women about this issue, they say, well, uh, we were starting from zero, which was often the case. Uh, and so it's not surprising that women have made more progress than men in that sense. But even so, the progress that women have made is, uh, is not enough to bring women up to the level of men today. They're still making less overall. And it's also not enough to counteract or cancel out the overall decline in incomes across the population. So uh, women are making more than they did, yes, but men are making a whole lot less than they did. And the result is an overall decline. And yet... Going back to our earlier point, America is getting richer every day. 
That's right. I mean, that's the incredible thing. If you think about the American economy, it's just expanded so much. Uh, you know, just in the past few years since the uh, financial crisis, but even going back 20 or 30 years, the amount that the American economy produces in terms of goods and services every year is really mind-boggling. And in terms of the progress of technology, workers are able to accomplish so much. Uh, 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 computers have really uh, made the retail sector much more efficient. For example, manufacturing is uh, getting profoundly more efficient every day. Uh, 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 the U.S. manufacturing sector produces more than it ever has had with fewer and fewer workers. And what that shows is that we have made progress in our ability to produce. We're, we're much more productive as a country, and we have more people, and so we're able to get a lot more done. And yet somehow all of that progress, all of that production does not seem to accrue to the typical American household. So again, let's talk about this report in collaboration with the University of Minnesota, the University of Chicago, Princeton, and the federal government, because right now the debate in Washington is on tax reform. The president proposing some significant tax cuts. The White House says that that could spur growth at perhaps 4%. Explain that number and why it is so significant in terms of your income and economic growth. 4% is a very big number. Uh, it means that overall, the total national incomes of all Americans are increasing by uh, 4% a year. And that hasn't been the case for many years. I mean, you'd have to go back to the Clinton administration at least to find sustained economic growth of at least 4%. But the crucial thing to keep in mind is that overall economic growth of 4% does not necessarily mean that the typical household's income grows by that amount. So if you think about the typical household income uh, being somewhere in the range of fifty dollars to $60,000, that amount you know, might change, it might go up, or it might go down. Uh, the question is, um, uh, what is the total income for the country as a whole? And uh, if the rich get richer while the poor get poorer, then the total income can go up while average incomes don't change. On the other hand, uh, you know, depending on the, the the policies that this president and Republicans in Congress pursue, then uh, yes, indeed, a four percent uh, uh, growth in GDP sustained over several years could mean real improvements for the typical American family's standard of living. How do we define middle class? Because if you live in New York City or Los Angeles, your income would be very different than if you live in Peoria, Illinois. It's a very good question, and uh, there's no really widely accepted answer to it. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the cost of living varies widely between the city, especially coastal cities like New York and San Francisco and rural areas. Uh, additionally, uh, it depends on how many people you have in your household. If you have a large family, it takes more income to support them, and so a typical household income of $55,000 a year might not be enough uh, for a family of, say, five or six individuals. Uh, the way that I use the term middle class, it refers to people who are roughly in the middle of the earnings distribution. That is, people who are making quite a bit more than many Americans, but also making quite a bit less than many Americans and are roughly in the middle in that sense. And uh, that's about as close as I think we can get to a, a widely accepted definition of the middle class. And as you know, one of the biggest challenges and biggest expenses, uh, colleges. If you attend a public college or university, you can expect, on average, between fifty dollars to $80,000 over four years. If you attend a private school, you're looking at upwards of one hundred and fifty to maybe as much as $200,000 a year to pay for, uh, for, for a degree. 
that also includes a lot of student debt. So talk about that and how that impacts your lifetime earnings. That is, that is an excellent question. I mean, there's so much concern about student debt. We know that student debt has increased. More people are going to college. College is getting quite a bit more expensive, too. So that means people are borrowing more. Now, how that affects their overall lifetime earnings is a difficult question to answer. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it's difficult to have student debt. Uh, young people have to pay it off. That prevents them from making other investments in their lives, such as buying a house, buying a car, starting a family, and that, that in turn can uh, slow down economic activity overall, reduce demand for those uh, important goods in the economy, such as housing and the auto industry. On the other hand, when people make investments in their future in the form of a college education, they are acquiring skills and knowledge, and of course, it's important to say as well, uh, building contacts and social networks that they will then be able to use as they get older and as their career progresses to earn more money. So it's it's ambiguous. On the one hand, in this short term, yes, student debt uh, does uh, does have a negative effect on the on the economy overall. But over the long term, it could turn out to be a wise investment. And I think that uh, the jury is still out on how this increase recently in student debt will affect today's young workers. And what are your thoughts about older workers who stay in the workforce? Uh, many into their 70s, uh, in part because they need the income, in part because they are not ready to retire. Does that put a squeeze on younger workers trying to enter the workforce and increase their salaries? Yes, it does. Uh, although, in principle, it shouldn't. Um, in principle, you know, we should have an economy that, that creates enough work for everybody. And, uh, you know, the more, the more uh, income those older workers have, the more they have to spend. And so they should be able to spend it on products produced by younger workers as well. But it doesn't seem to be working that way recently. And I think you have to ask, you know, what is it about the American economy that's, that's gone wrong exactly? And why is it that there doesn't seem to be enough work to go around? We do know that older workers are staying in the economy. They're, they're participating in the workforce longer into into their retirement years often. We know that uh, younger people are spending more time in school. And so the question then becomes, well, why is it that, that these people are making these decisions about their work and their school and whether or not they're participating in the economy that, uh, that they didn't make in the past? And is it for good reasons or is it for bad reasons? You cover the policy side of all of this. So what, if anything, can the president, can Congress do in, in order to increase wages? Well, there, there's an obvious answer, and the obvious answer is cut taxes for the middle class, and President Trump has said he wants to do that, and I think a lot of middle class people would really enjoy getting a tax cut. But I also think that uh, you know that's not really going to be enough to satisfy both the president's an own ambitions and, uh, and the desires of uh, ordinary Americans, because what people want to see really is the economy moving again in, in a way that, that feels... Uh, feels reassuring. They want to have a sense of confidence in the uh, in the outlook for the American economy, and uh, you know a tax cut will put more people uh, you know uh, uh, in the black in the short term, so to speak. But really, the long term question is about how do we uh, you know how do we uh, uh, restore improvements in productivity? How do we translate technology into making more work for people as well as more products for consumers? Uh, how do we uh, address the you know the differences between the skills that that young people have and and the skills that they need to succeed in the modern economy? I mean, these are very difficult questions. And as you look at post World War II America, a lot of jobs, a lot of manufacturing jobs, uh, many of those jobs are being outsourced or now turning into automation. So, are we doing enough to keep 
those workers trained to maintain a middle-class income? I think most economists would say that the answer is probably not. Uh, and, and, and that is, a, that is a, another difficult question to answer because, uh, you know, if you think about the, the broad scope of American history as well as uh, the history overall of, of uh, Western economies, technology has always been the way that we have made progress economically speaking, that we have become materially richer, we've been able to do more with less, and that's really what technology and innovation is all about. It's about making uh, making us more efficient with the resources and the labor that we have. And yet, in recent years, it seems as though uh, technological progress has resulted in not so much in ordinary standards of living improving, but rather uh, in, in workers being displaced often because they, they, do, they, they do not have the skills to take on a different kind of job than the one they had, and the one they had uh, is automated, and, and, and the result is that they're out of work. So then you have to ask the question, well, you know, what is it that young people need to know if they're going to succeed in the economy moving forward? And of course, because technology is changing so rapidly, uh, that's, that's a difficult thing to predict. So generally speaking, are Americans working harder and longer just to make ends meet? I I would say so. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's not an easy thing to um, uh, say whether or not Americans are working harder than they did in the past. Uh, I mean, Americans have always worked hard, and it's a difficult thing to measure how how hard they're working. But it is true that if you look at the overall picture, uh, the American economy is producing quite a bit more than it did in the past, perhaps because people are working harder or maybe just because we're more efficient and we have better tools, better equipment, better technology than we did in the past. And yet, uh, at the same time, people aren't making as much as they did. And do you know how we stack up, say, to Canada, our neighbors to the north, or Great Britain, Germany, France, other industrialized countries around the world? The, the international comparison between the United States economic progress and, uh, and, and foreign countries' economic progress is always a, a, a point of contention because it involves bragging rights, um, uh, you know, who's got the best economy, who's got the best model and philosophy of economic growth as well. And uh, uh, I, I would say that, generally speaking, um, the United States is, is one of the more unequal countries in terms of the difference between the rich and the poor, although uh, some countries uh, have greater inequality. And and I think most troublingly for many Americans, the simple fact is that uh, the United States is a country where if you grow up poor, it's really hard to get ahead in comparison to countries in Europe and, and other rich countries around the world. And that's that's worrying because many Americans have the idea that that uh, this is this is a meritocracy. This is the land of the American dream, where people who work hard really can get ahead. They can better their position in uh, in life and as well as uh, uh, in terms of their social status. And that's just that's just not really the case in the United States. For the most part, people who are born into a, a certain uh, economic climate um, remain in that position over the course of their lives. And let me conclude where you conclude in your piece, again available online at WashingtonPost.com, the future for younger workers. And you say right now the prospects are, quote, dim. 
That's correct. I mean, obviously, we don't know what will happen to today's younger workers, and we can all hope that they will uh, make make progress and, and earn more as they get older. But given what I said earlier, if you think about the fact that the average, uh, the average earnings for a group of people who are all the same age uh, when they're 25 years old is an easy way to predict how much money they'll make over the course of the rest of their lives, uh, that suggests that given how little young people are making today, their prospects going forward are not that great. And, and really, it would require quite a departure from the past. It would mean that uh, young people today really get lucky in a way that uh, their their uh, workers who went before did not. They uh, workers who went before typically uh, uh, made a little bit more after they were 25, and a little bit more after they were 30, and a little bit more after they were 35, and so on. They made they made gradual progress, and for for young people today, uh, they would really have to accelerate far beyond that trajectory. Does priming the pump, which is a phrase that we've heard in recent days, uh, does that help in terms of uh, overall economic growth and wage increase? It could help in the short term. I think most economists would agree on that. Uh, priming the pump, of course, refers to the idea that the federal government can borrow money and thus uh, put more money into the economy and stimulate uh, business, investment, hiring, spending, and so on. The problem is that eventually the federal government does have to pay that money back. And so, uh, and, and, and when those bills do come due, then uh, uh, there can be other consequences. Um, interest rates can increase, inflation can increase. And so, it's difficult to say right now at this moment whether priming the pump is a good idea. I think most economists feel like uh, the economy is already doing pretty well, not, not nearly as well as many people would like, of course, but that uh, the, the scope or the, the potential for benefits from priming the pump uh, is is limited, unfortunately. It is a 70-plus page report conducted in part with the federal government, the University of Minnesota, University of Chicago, and Princeton University, and the analysis of Max Ehrenfreud of the Washington Post. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.